Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, welcome to New City Church. We are picking up in Revelation chapter five. We had some technical problems last Sunday, so we're doing this re-record. Hopefully this is a blessing to all of you out there watching online and to those that were in the service. Thank you so much, really appreciate it. So we're picking up in Revelation five. Before we start, let's just open a word of prayer and solicit the Holy Spirit to be with us and teach us all things. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to teach your word and to study your word and to further help shape and foster and strengthen and grow that unashamed bride ever looking for your return. Lord, I pray your special anointing upon this teaching and that, Father, you would go forward and teach us all things by your Spirit, according to 1 John 2, 27. So thank you again, Lord. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we picked up in Revelation 4, we were in the throne room of the universe, and we're going to continue that scene here in Revelation 5. And as Revelation opens up, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. So if you remember from last time in chapter four, we were in the throne room. We had the four faces of the cherubim around the throne. We had the 24 elders and their identifying characteristics. We had the angelic entities, the hosts of heaven all around the throne of Jesus and the throne of the Father, really. And what we saw there in that scene was how he alone is worthy, and that's going to continue here in chapter 5. And what we get to now at this point in the throne room is we see that the Father is on his throne holding a scroll, a book that's written within and on the backside. And the word here in the Greek is actually biblion, which means a scroll. And so this scroll is written within, and it's written on the backside of it, and it's rolled up and sealed with these seven seals, and the Father is holding the scroll sitting on the throne. And what they would do in ancient times, they would actually write on these eight by 10 inch sheets of paper, and they would join the sheets together into a long scroll, and then roll it onto a wooden roller, and that would be the scroll that's how they transcribe the Bible and all, all kinds of important documents. So the document would be continuously written out. And just for comparison's sake, the book of Matthew is about 30 feet long. The book of Revelation is about 15 feet long, just to give you a feeling for the length of some of these scrolls. And at the time, they did not have chapter and verse separations like we do today in the Bible that was added later but it's a great reference tool for us. And so here in the throne room, we have the Father holding a scroll. And why is it written on the backside? You know, what is that about? So when you go 
and you think about everything in the book of Revelation is written in code. And that code is explained somewhere else in the Bible as a hint. It's part of why it makes studying the book so difficult is because a lot of people don't fully appreciate or understand the Old Testament. And so it's confusing to them. But everything in the book is answered somewhere else in the Bible with most of those answers being in the Old Testament. And so when you go back to Jeremiah, before the children of Israel go into captivity to Babylon, God tells Jeremiah to buy his uncle's field. And this is in Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 14. And Jeremiah writes the evidence on a scroll. So he goes and he collects the money. He writes the evidence, the purchase of that field on a scroll. And then on the back side, he wrote the terms and conditions of what it would take to unseal that scroll when the children of Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. And this was, way, this was God's way of showing them that they would return from Babylon. It was a proof of purchase. It was a proof that that land rightfully belonged to the children of Israel and Jeremiah's family. So God was telling them, hey, you will come back. And the terms and conditions of that arrangement were written on the backside of the scroll. And while the inside would contain the instructions, conditions, or evidence of ownership. And so it's also modeled in Ezekiel, this idea of written within on the backside. But when the children of Israel would get back from Babylon, they would find this scroll buried in the earthen vessel in the field that Jeremiah bought. And then they would take it out and they would read on the backside the terms and conditions to open it. Are you of this lineage? Are you this family? Things like that. And then when they unsealed it, they would roll it out and see, okay, here's the proof of purchase. In Ezekiel, this is also modeled in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, or within and on the backside. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. So this scroll in Ezekiel also contains mourning and judgments. It was a scroll containing great woe and lamentations, judgments from the Lord. And the scroll here in Revelation, what we will see is it is the title deed to the earth. But the world must first be purged of a Christ-rejecting people. Of all the people that finally say and draw that line in the sand and say, No, I will not accept the free gift of salvation and eternal life from my creator. And so the whole book of Revelation is about redemption. And the book as we go through from chapter six on is all about redemption. The Lord giving people one last time to finally accept him and to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and to have a place in his eternal kingdom. And he gives the world so many opportunities to accept Jesus one final time. But the scroll is a result, the scroll the Father's holding here. It's a sealed indictment, but it's also, or the title of the world, but it's also a sealed indictment against the world, against a Christ-rejecting world. And so this here, as you'll see, Jesus will unloose seal by seal, and he will unloose it, and it unravels a little bit. 
and there's judgment declared. And he unlooses the next seal and it's unraveled a little bit. And there's judgment declared. And what we're going to actually see as we go through the book is it has what the Jews would refer to as a heptatic structure, meaning it's all structured around sevens. It has seven seals, but the seventh seal unlocks seven trumpets. And then there's seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet unlocks seven bowls or seven vials. And then it goes on. So it has this heptatic structure of sevens as we go on. And so what we're going to see here is Jesus is coming forward in the throne room of the universe to take back what he rightfully paid for, to take back the title deed to the earth. And what we're going to get into in chapter 6 moving forward is the day of vengeance of our God. And so when Jesus back in Luke chapter 4, he steps into the synagogue in Luke and he picks up the book of Isaiah. And he goes, and this is all captured in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, he being Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for a read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, we read that and Jesus accomplished all of that in his first arrival on earth. When the creator first stepped back into his creation, he accomplished all of this. But when you go back to Isaiah 61 and you actually read what Jesus was reading, where was he quoting from? He's quoting the first two verses of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And when you go read this, it says, it's almost verbatim. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, in Luke 4, this is where he stops, and he closes the book, and he hands it back to the minister, and he sits down. But when you read the rest of the verse, he stops at a comma. And after that comment says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So Jesus stops at this comma because that the day of vengeance of our Lord has not happened yet. That's what happens when he takes the scroll here in Revelation 5 and starts to loose the seals. It's the day of vengeance of our God. And why is that coming upon all of the earth? He says right here, to comfort all that mourn. And what he's talking about is all that mourn for Jesus, all that long for a righteous king to rule on planet Earth, all that long for the rule of the creator of the universe to rightfully take back what he paid for and he alone is worthy to take back and to sit on his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign for a thousand years and then forever thereafter 
It's to comfort us that more because we look for that righteous king, a righteous person to rule on the earth. So the day of vengeance of our God, this is what we all have to be rejoiceful about is to for Jesus to redeem the world in such a place that it allows him to come back and to set up his throne. Because just like he did with the children of Israel, they could not dwell with him in Egypt. They could not dwell there because he wanted relationship and fellowship with him, but he cannot be with them, but he cannot dwell with them amongst a Christ-rejecting, revolting world that is full of sin. So that's what's going on here in Revelation. So in the next two verses, or verse two of Revelation five, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I want you to notice that here, the people in heaven are looking in three places for a man that is worthy. Now, why those three places? Because at this point, everyone that's a member of the church, the body of Christ, is in heaven. Whether you died before the rapture or you lived up to the rapture, if you were in Jesus during this period of time called the church age, at this point, you are in heaven. So there are saints in heaven. There are saints on the earth because after the rapture, it'll be a little bit of time before Jesus comes forward to take this scroll. There will be a mass revival of people coming to know the Lord before the tribulation begins. There's a gap of time between the rapture and then the start of the tribulation. The start of it is when Jesus loses the first seal and the white horse comes forward, the false counterfeit antichrist on a fake white horse comes forward and that's in revelation chapter 6 and when he affirms a covenant with the nation of israel that triggers the start of that final seven year period so which we keep there's a gap of time we don't know how much it is but between the rapture and this man coming forward and rising in power being revealed making a covenant affirming a covenant with the nation then during that time, there's going to be a lot of people saved because of the rapture. So there's people on earth saved at this point. And then there's people under the earth in Sheol. And from Luke 16, we know there's two sides to the bottomless pit. You know, geographically, all through the Bible, it speaks of the bottomless pit going down to the pit, to Sheol, to Hades, to the bottomless pit, as the Bible calls it, over and over. And there's only one place in the entire universe where there can be no bottom, and that's the center of the earth, because every direction is up, and so you have the bottomless pit, in Luke 16, you have a giant chasm there, and you have Abraham's bosom, and then you have, which is where the good Old Testament saints are, and then you have the other side, where the rich man was tortured, who rejected Jesus in his time on, life, in, on the earth. And so, the Old Testament saints, all the way up until John the Baptist do not get their resurrected bodies until Jesus steps foot back on earth in Revelation 19. We see that in Daniel, Job, and a lot of other places in the Bible. And so there are saved people still down there waiting 
to be resurrected at this point when Jesus takes the scroll. And so that's why they looked in three spots, in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And so no man was found worthy. And it says, John wept, and I wept much. And in the Greek, it doesn't really come across as strong in the English, in the King James, but in the Greek, it literally means he bewailed and had immense grief. Meaning John knew what this meant, that they looked at all these different saints and all these saved people, and there was not a single one that was worthy to come forward and to take that scroll. So he's weeping because there's nobody to redeem what Jesus rightfully paid for. And so why are they looking for a man in the first place? You know, when you think about this, why, are they, why does it need to be a man to begin with? And the scroll in the hand of the Father, it's the title deed of the earth. And when Adam fell, he forfeited it to the enemy, which is why in the temptation when Jesus, when Satan tempts Jesus, it's why Satan could offer him all of the kingdoms of the world and it actually be a temptation because right now he is the ruler and the prince of the power of the air of this. He has deed to it. it Adam forfeited it. But, praise God, Jesus came forward and bought it back on our behalf. And what that whole discourse there, what he's saying is, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Just worship me and I'll give it to you. But thank the Lord Jesus did not take the temptation. He refuted it and modeled it for us by refuting it with Scripture, the entire counsel of God's Word. And as a result, we get to be co-heirs with him on earth. So Adam forfeited. This is Jesus rightfully taking back it was given to a man and as a result the redemption must come from a near kinsman or in the hebrew we refer to as a goel okay goel according to the law of redemption so goel in the hebrew means a kinsman redeemer or a reclaimant it's a next of kin upon whom according to ancient hebrew custom devolved certain family rights and duties including the avenging of a murderer's murdered kin's blood and the redemption of the person or property of a relative in debt or helpless circumstances. And that's exactly where we were. We were in a helpless circumstance and Jesus as our kinsman redeemer came forward and redeemed us and he's in simultaneously is going to redeem the earth. So he is our Noah. The kinsman redeemer He's a redeemer, but he's also the avenger of blood, which is interesting because Jesus in his role will be the avenger of blood in the day of vengeance of our God in that Luke 4 versus Isaiah 61 comparison. So this whole concept of the Goel takes us back to the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we've got three main people. You have Boaz, who's the Lord of the harvest, the kinsman redeemer. He's also named as one of the pillars in Solomon's temple. And the name means of his strength or in him is strength. And then you have Naomi, who's a type of Israel. And then you have Ruth, who is a Gentile bride, a type of the church. That's us. So the Goel and Boaz had four criteria in order to act as a kinsman redeemer. He must be a kinsman or a near kinsman. He must be able to perform the obligation must be willing to perform. Notice that in the law, it was not a requirement. 
he had to be willing to come forward and to act in his role as the kinsman redeemer. And finally, he must assume all of the obligations of the beneficiary. So in the book of Ruth, Boaz acts in his role as the Goel. And in doing so, he simultaneously executes two laws, the law of redemption to get the land back for Naomi and the law of love right marriage to take for himself a Gentile bride in Ruth. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the book of Revelation. He as the Goel is getting a Gentile bride, which is us, the church, and simultaneously through that process is going to get Israel back the land that was promised to them all the way back to Abraham. That land grant, the unconditional land grant from the Lord himself. And you can check out the end of Ezekiel. It partitions the land in the millennium for this much acreage for Dan. And then you got Judah and Reuben. Anyway, you go through that. He's got the land partitioned. So he's going to get the land back for the nation of Israel through taking this scroll. So the Levite marriage, it was a customer law decree that a widow should marry her dead husband's brother. And the term actually comes from the Latin levir, meaning husband's brother. That's kind of where the root of it comes from. So in the book of Ruth, it's this short little four-chapter book that is so rich in the relationship that we share with Jesus, the relationship Israel shares with Jesus, and then how we benefit from one another through that relationship. And so there's a lot of typology in the book of Ruth. And in order to bring Ruth, the church, to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. You notice that at the very beginning. What the law could not do, grace overcame. And Ruth, notice in the book, Ruth does not replace Naomi. They are independent, separate entities, never to be replaced one by the other. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi, but yet Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. Very, very interesting. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to wait for her to act. She had to make the first move. She had to step forward in faith and take the gift from the future bridegroom, Boaz. And Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. And remember afterward, Ruth loosed his shoe. It was a sign of disgrace that this man would not act in the role of the Goel. Whereas Jesus, in the typology, Jesus is honored and worthy. He alone is worthy as our kinsman redeemer, which is why he's acting on our behalf. Okay, moving on in Revelation 5. So we've got the Goel, our kinsman redeemer, is about to take this scroll. Verses 5 and 6 in Revelation 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. That's, that's one of us. And what I want you to notice is throughout Revelation, anything that is described or explained to John in heaven is by one of the 24 elders, by one of us, a member of the church. And anything on earth that is explained or described is by one of the angels. So very interesting. Just notice that because the 24 elders, our inheritance is in heaven and Israel's is on the earth. And we thankfully get to rule and reign with Jesus in heaven over the earth. So weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne, 
And of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here we've got three titles of Jesus not used in Revelation yet. We've got the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and a Lamb as it had been slain. And notice that all of these titles of Jesus are very Jewish. They're very Jewish here, and from here forward, it's all very Jewish. The book is very Jewish because it's the time of Jacob's trouble. The focus, once again, is on the nation Israel, where God is going to work the entire planet Earth through Israel. The church, the word church, does not even appear from here forward in the book of Revelation, which is another hint that we won't be there. But all the titles here are Jewish, and the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, a lamb as it had been slain. Let's look at each one of these a little bit. The lion is Jacob's final blessing on his son Judah in Genesis. You go all the way back to Genesis 49 and verses 8 through 10, and Jacob declares over Judah, really the Lord through Jacob has this prophecy on Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And certainly they are. Jesus of the line of the tribe of Judah is who we praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So this whole concept of the line of the tribe of Judah goes all the way back to Genesis 49. And it's also echoed in Hosea 5.14, Hebrews 7.14, and a lot of other spots in the Bible. And one other note here, there's an interesting prophecy in Genesis 49 here that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's interesting, so let's just cover it real quick. At the end of these verses, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. The term Shiloh here is always used of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and the scepter was a sign in Israel that they had the right to administer capital punishment. You know, it's interesting to notice throughout the Old Testament in Israel, there were never prisons. They had a law and they dealt with issues very swiftly, very quickly. It was once and final. There was not a prison system in Israel. And the scepter, the right to administer capital punishment, Israel never lost that right until Rome took them over. And when Rome took them over, they lost the right to administer capital punishment. And it's not recorded in the Bible, but this is in historical text, that when that happened, the Jewish rabbis put on sackcloth and ashes, and they roamed around Jerusalem mourning because in their eyes, God's word had been broken, that the scepter was taken, but yet Shiloh had not come, the Messiah had not shown up. And what they didn't know was that there was a young man up in Nazareth at a carpenter shop who was the Messiah. He was there. It happened right then. He showed up on time, and this happened right when he showed up. So, very interesting side note. The root of David, 
This is all over the Bible. The root of David, the root of Jesse, is from Isaiah 11, 1, Isaiah 11, 10, Jeremiah 23, Romans 15, Revelation 22, just to name a few. The, this title is what Jesus used to confuse the Pharisees in Matthew 22. This is verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And I love this because you get such a sense of Jesus and his personality and his sarcasm and how he used the scriptures and the word of God to confuse these Pharisees that were just really religious zealots. They didn't get it, that he was the root can be fully man and yet fully God, Lord over David while an offspring of David at the same time. But the root of David, the root of David, interesting title. Okay, we see Jesus with seven horns and seven eyes here in Revelation, back to verses five and six. The seven horns, these are always a symbol of power throughout the Bible. You see that in 1 Kings 22, Zechariah 1, Psalms 75. They are a symbol of honor in 1 Samuel 2, Psalms 89, Psalms 112, and Psalms 148. So this idea of seven horns, because he has all power and authority and honor, and he alone is worthy to do this, take this event that we're about to see here. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. We covered that all the way back in Revelation chapter 1. It's from Isaiah 11, 2, the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. This is also in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4. And according to Psalms 2, verse 6, he's going to reign on Mount Zion. So it's all about the power and authority that Jesus has to rule and to reign. And he alone has that authority because he alone can take the scroll out of the Father's hand. We can't even look on it, the scripture just said. We are so unworthy that we couldn't even look thereupon. But here comes one, weep not, says one of the elders. Behold, there is one. There is one that is worthy. And this one, in the next verses, verses seven and eight, chapter five, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts of the living creatures and four and 20 elders, that's us, the church, fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. We're gonna see that later in Revelation, that an angel's going to take our prayers and cast them down to the earth, one of the judgments but I want you to notice that the prayers of the saints are sitting before the throne room of the universe, before God. Every prayer you have ever prayed in your life is there before the throne room of the universe. The Lord does not miss a one. And it's just a matter of has he answered it in his time or not. 
And what you have to understand is that he doesn't forget. And Jesus is never early and he's never late. He's always right on time. He always shows up exactly when it's required. And so if you have a prayer out there that has not been answered yet, and it's in the will of the Father, just sit tight. Sit tight. He's working. But here we see one that came forward, and he came and he took the book. He took the scroll out of the right hand of the Father. I want you to get this imagery of being in the throne room of the universe, however many billions upon billions, perhaps trillions of different Entities are going to be there. Angels, heavenly hosts, cherubim, seraphim, the church, the saints that are a member of the bride of Christ. And it won't be in these three and a half dimensions that we live in, three spatial and a half dimension at a time. It's going to be, this is in a hyperspace, a dimensionality, a heavenly realm that's access to those other six and a half dimensions that we know from string theory, from quantum physics, exist that we just don't have access to them. Which is why every single person that's there is going to be able to see this event. If you are there, if your ticket is punched, you are going to have eyes on Jesus as he alone walks through the midst of the people and comes forward and grabs that scroll once and for all. It will be the greatest closing of deed, of title deed, of escrow ever to take place in human history. And we will have no choice but to fall before Jesus and worship the Lamb who alone is worthy. And notice why is he worthy? Because he's a lamb as was slain. He's the root of David. He's the lion and the tribe of Judah, the lion and the lamb. The lion, the ruling king, the lamb that had to die to purchase us and to purchase it all back. We are going to have eyes on the creator of the universe who is going to step through the throne room that he alone has the authority to do, and he's going to come forward and finally, once and for all, take back what he purchased, what he alone can pay for. And we are going to have the greatest time of celebration ever in heaven at that moment. It is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and moment to see this. It's only going to happen once, so make sure you get there. In verses 9 and 10, chapter 5, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. See, we even know he alone is worthy to take it and to start loosening it because he fulfilled all the terms and conditions on the back of it. For thou wast slain, he was, and has redeemed us, he did, to God by the blood, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Boy, amen. Again, the 24 elders are from every nation on the earth. There's only one people group that meets that's the church. We're washed in Messiah's blood. This goes back to Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and to his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's from Revelation 1. 
So we are kings and priests. In 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a royal priesthood. Again, there's only these three groups, Melchizedek from Genesis, Jesus was a king and a priest, and then us, the church, we are kings and priests. But ye, in 1 Peter 2, 9, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That is us. We've been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. So to wrap up the chapter, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, an innumerable multitude. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And without even looking there, you can probably guess there are seven items that Jesus alone is worthy and he's been given. He alone is worthy. He alone can take back what he rightfully paid for and purchased. And he alone will receive these seven items. There's seven things here. Power. This is from Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians, Hebrews, Mark, etc. It's all over the Bible. All power is given to Jesus. Riches from 2 Corinthians 8, Ephesians 3, and again, all over the Bible. He is heir of all things, and by him we are co-heirs with him in all things. Wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1 and James 1. In fact, the entire book of Proverbs is about wisdom and getting wisdom, how you get wisdom, and the bride getting wisdom. The whole book is a typology of us, the church, with Jesus, our wisdom. He is strength, Psalms 24, Matthew 12, Luke 11. His, he's going to get all honor in Philippians 2, Psalms 104, Psalms 8, Hebrews 2. All glory goes to him throughout the entire Gospel of John, John 1, 2, 11, verse 4, verse 40, John 17, etc. All blessing is given to him in Psalms 103. So these themes are all over the Bible, and he alone is worthy to receive all seven of these on our behalf. Praise God. So if you do not know Jesus and you want to make sure you have a seat in the throne room of the universe to be a part of the greatest title deed closing to take place in human history, then it's very simple. There's a small window of time that every single day closes. Every hour, it gets smaller. Every second, it gets smaller. The church age is rapidly closing. The invitation to be a member of the Bride of Christ, the wedding invite, is expiring soon. And it's simple. In Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's it. It's very simple. If you're watching this online today, I pray if you don't know Jesus, that you would go into your closet, go by your bed, go to your place at work, by your desk, wherever you are, and stoop down on your knees and make the decision once and for all in your life to have your wedding invitation sealed. That you have a place in the throne room of the universe 
never to be revoked. Your RSVP is mailed in and you have a ticket home, a home that Jesus in John 14 went to prepare for you. He has you in mind right now as he's building that new city. It's the namesake of our church. It's the namesake and the founding of this church. It's that new city that he is preparing for us right now. In Ezekiel 48, it speaks of the name of that new city from that day forward shall be the Lord is there, Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is there. You want to make sure that you are there with the Lord. So you can have your seat reserved. He wants to welcome you home forever. And right now, you can take your place in the bride of Christ. You don't do anything to add to it. His work is finished on the cross for you. He, he's cried out to tell us It is finished, paid in full. It's a, it's a paid in full invoice. All you have to do is accept the offering. There's nothing else you have to do. In Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though, be, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what the Lord is calling us here is to reason with him. And in Amos, how can two walk together lest they are in agreement, lest they reason together? And that's exactly what the Lord is calling you to do right now. Reason together with him. Get into agreement with the one that knew you before the foundation of the world, that wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before you even had a member formed by him in the womb of your mother. Get into agreement with him so that you have eternity taken care of. And once that is paid for, from there forward starts the greatest journey of your life, the journey of sanctification, to be molded and shaped like him, to get to know him through the word of God, to be a unashamed bride for him, to let him shed anything you're carrying in your life that you've been weighing you down, that you're ashamed of, anything you have in your life that is not a holy, righteous act on behalf of him, let him work and get rid of it. He said, take on his burden and his yoke, for it's easy and light, because it is specifically tailored for you. Too many people today try to carry around a burden that they were not made and equipped to carry. Jesus was meant to equip and equipped to carry that, not you. So whatever sin in your life that you're carrying around with you, that, that baggage, he's equipped to take it off and to shed it and to pay for it once and for all. He and he alone. And let him do that. And once you start that journey, your life, I guarantee, will never be the same. You will come to a, an abundance of peace an abundance of truth, an abundance of joy, an abundance of contentment in your life, an abundance of purpose. God made you and saved you on purpose and for purpose. And the greatest journey you can go on in your life is to figure out what was that for? What would the Lord have me do to serve him, to be a part of his kingdom? And so I hope you will do that today. Let's close in a word of prayer and then just a couple of things I wanna share with you guys. Lord, I just thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you, God, for the promise, the promise that we have in eternal life with you. 
And Lord, I just pray that right now you would come forward and that, Lord, we would hear from you in this very special way. God, be with those listening online. Be with us here in New City in Oklahoma City. God, be with us. I pray a special blessing upon all of the families that you are knitting together here in this congregation, that we would be on fire to serve you. So thank you, Lord, for this time together and bless the teaching of your word as we continue through this incredible book that is so rich for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple of quick updates for those online. We do apologize for some of the technical difficulties we've had over the past few months. We're getting all that worked out. We've got some new AV equipment coming in. It should be ready to go live for the service on April the 11th. And so hopefully that'll make the experience better for you all listening all around the world. Thank you so much. If you want to reach out to us, you've got our email address and look on Vimeo and on YouTube and you can find, you can find easy ways to get a hold of us. So thank you guys so much. God bless.